and good evening and welcome to Brooklands. Um, I'm sorry about the temperature. I was going to say a very warm welcome, but I think you, uh, it would have been a bit of a pun. A special welcome to our guests this evening. Um, and once again, thank you all for supporting the Trust. Um, I've had the honour and privilege to organise and host these talks for the last four years. Seems like 40, but it's only four. There's one name that has been at the top of my list, and that name is on the top of your list and hasn't gone away ever since I started. So will you please give a very warm welcome to Tony Brooks and Simon Taylor. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I think it's fair to say that Great Britain produced three great Grand Prix drivers in the 1950s. Sterling Moss, Mike Hawthorne, and Tony Brooks. Now, in these days of worldwide TV audiences and million-dollar retainers and endless media conferences, this man would be as famous as Lewis Hamilton or Jensen Button. But I don't think he would have enjoyed it much. Tony has always been a man to let his performances on the track do the talking. So we're very honoured that he's agreed to come and spend a Thursday evening with us, with Pina, uh, a sportswoman herself. She was an international basketball player before she married Tony. And they've been together, I should for 58 years. Now, because... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, because Tony is much too modest to recite the statistics of his career, I've just scribbled down a few of them. In 1958, in his, in, I'm sorry, in 1955, in his first Formula One race, I think his first single-seater race, he scored the first Grand Prix victory by a British driver in a British car since 1924. In his second World Championship Grand Prix, he finished second. In his third World Championship Grand Prix, he won. During his three seasons with Van Wall and with Ferrari, he won 50% of the Grand Prix that he finished. And I think I'm right in saying that during the 1950s, only Fangio, Ascari, and Moss won more Grand Prix. It's amazing to realise it, but Tony's win at the British Grand Prix at Aintree in 1957, shared with Sterling Moss in the Van Wall. That's 60 years ago uh, next month, so that's something we should draw a quick pint for. That win in 1957 in the British Grand Prix was the first ever win in a World Championship Grand Prix by a British car. And then when Van Wall withdrew, Tony was immediately hired as the number one at Ferrari. Well, Tony, you've always been a modest man. You've never made a fuss about your achievements. <clears throat> do, you, do you sometimes feel that you've never really had the recognition that you deserved for your motor racing achievements? No, not at all. Um, I enjoyed uh, motor racing, got tremendous satisfaction out of it. And, uh, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, I'm always prepared to be judged by uh, my results, you know, and uh, I never had the um, ambition of trying to sort of uh, publicise myself with the idea of sort of turning it into, uh, into um, 
monetary return, um, we got uh, we got um, we got uh, prize money. We got some retainers in those days, but uh, um, I'm probably overstating uh, their value when I said they're peanuts <laughs> compared, compared with today. Uh, but I was never interested. I mean, Sterling was a, a professional. Um, uh, you know, he uh, from uh, beginning to end, and um, that was his life. And I think, uh, you know, I think motor racing uh, was was his life in 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 in, in many many ways. Uh, but um, uh, he um, uh, so he maximised his publicity, which is necessary. And uh, as a result, of course, he's still. Uh, were known worldwide as uh, as much, I think almost as much as when he was uh, performing and uh, and winning Grand Prix. But um, uh, no, I was perfectly happy, and uh, um, I'm extremely almost well. I mustn't overdo it, but um, you, you've just given me a very good uh, introduction, and uh, <coughs> that is satisfaction in itself. And uh, 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 so the short answer to your question, which I've uh, managed to uh, lengthen quite a bit is, uh, no, I was never, never worried about uh, not being, uh, uh, receiving more publicity. Well, you, you say that, <coughs> excuse me, you say that Sterling Moss was always a professional. In your case, mm. you were actually going to be a dentist. Yes. You never intended to be a, a, a yes. racing driver. Yeah. Um, you, you started off just doing it for fun. I'm going to press yeah. this magic device here. It works. We should be able to see. No, not yet, but I'll keep trying. There we go. There is your oh, first yes. racing car. Yes. That is a Healy Silverstone, which was yes. uh, very much a road-going sports car. Yes. And I think while you were racing that, you were busy studying to be a dentist. Yes, I was. Before I um, answer that question, I sh should perhaps have um, clarified my previous answer, and that is that um, although I was never uh, professional like Sterling in the in terms of, in the terms of t making uh, motor motor racing my life uh, behind the wheel um, I was as totally committed mm. as anybody else because uh, uh, your life was on the line particularly mm. in the 1950s so mm. uh, I was totally professional behind the wheel mm. but when I got out of the car I was you know Tony Brooks and uh, just mm. enjoying the uh, the environment um, but um, coming back to your question, yes, it was my um, my mother's Healy Silverstone there, and it was um, your mother's. My, yes, my mother's Healy Silverstone. So, did, did yeah. you always uh, did well, you always it, take it back to her in one piece? Uh, well, yes. To start with, she had a TCMG, you see, and uh, that wasn't really suitable for club motor racing. So, uh, um, I um, bought a book called um, by uh, Charles Mortimer mm. about racing a Healy Silverstone, and I read this book, and I thought uh, this. Uh, this sounds, uh, you know, very good and uh, the ideal car. And um, I got uh, got my father and mother to read this book, and uh, my mother sort of uh, <laughs> ploughed through it and so on. And um, anyway, by the constant drip approach, I managed to suggest that uh, we should uh, change her TCMG for uh, for the uh, Healy Silverstone. And uh, we actually found this one. Well, I say found uh, in an advert. Uh, it was in the West Country. And um, I think um, we paid, I think, uh, 700 pounds for it. And um, I sold my motorbike. And uh, uh, with a little bit of help from uh, you know who, uh, we managed to find the 700 pounds and uh, buy this car. And my mother was such a tremendous sport because uh, 
as you see, it was not exactly uh, an ideal car for shopping. But, uh, <laughs> so she, uh, she you know, totally accepted the, uh, the exchange of a lovely TCMG, a lovely car. It was the first car I ever drove, had a beautiful gearbox. And um, she very sportingly uh, agreed to swapping her TCMG for, for that car. It was a two and a half litre Riley engine. And um, of course, uh, one of the things that helped me to sell the car to, and uh, the idea to my father and my mother, was that uh, I had this book which showed how reliable it had been and yeah. uh, you know, even gave some expenses and so on. So it was, you know, we weren't getting uh, out of our depth or anything like that. It was a reasonable car. In fact, an ideal car mm. for club motor race. It wasn't fast enough, but it was fast enough for me to get the uh, feel about motor racing. Well, you attracted enough attention to be able to be um, lent by... Um, is, it, is it going to come up? Yes, there it is. Uh, yeah. You've there got... Oh, Sorry, I've overpressed it. There we go. Two examples yes. of the lovely Fraser National Le Mans replica. Yes. Uh, and I think you're on the outside. Look as though you're overtaking uh, around the outside. Yes. Um, yes, I think that's right. Yes. And that was obviously a much quicker car, a much more competitive Yes, it was. Car. Well, uh, we were very fortunate uh, because, um, uh, of course, in those days, the club meetings were really, really friendly. You know, club meetings, not like so-called club meetings today. Uh, but, um, or some club meetings today, it's a bit too sweeping. Mm. And um, so we, you get to know everybody, you know, and if you had a problem, somebody would bear, lend you a bit, or this or that, the other. So I got to know a family called um, Healy, uh, uh, father and son. It was Arthur Healy and, um, uh, oh, gee, I've forgotten the, the, the son's Christian name, that's very bad. Um, anyway, it was a Healy family, spelt H E L Y, funnily enough. And I got to know them very well, and uh, uh, his son had a Healy Silverstone as well, so the father had the Fraser Nash and the son had the Healy Silverstone. And uh, obviously, uh, uh, we had an awful lot in common, and we got to know each other very well. And Mr. Healy, Arthur Healy, yes, very kindly uh, invited me to try his car. And um, so uh, once I started to drive his car, he sort of, you know, he stopped driving himself, mm -hmm. and uh, this was... Uh, a tremendous step up uh, for me in motor racing because that was fast enough to uh, uh, to win, uh, you know, five lap, ten lap races of good. And you attracted enough attention to be put into a works, Fraser Nash, or the second car yeah. uh, there at the Goodwood chicane, yeah. chasing what looks to me like a Lotus Bristol, Lotus 10, probably. Uh, no, I think it's a Lotus, yes. So... Uh, might even be... Um, uh, um, Yes. Now, you, there you are in a works, that's yeah. the works Mark II, yeah. the moral replica. Yeah. Did Fraser and Ash, did the Aldington brothers actually pay you any money, or did uh, they just no, say... No, no, they didn't. To be honest, the car was not as, the car was not as well prepared as the Healy car. It was a great disappointment, to be really? honest. Really? Yeah. yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it looks so, so different. You know, mm. They'd taken weight off here, weight off there. So... Um, it wasn't a good car, uh, to be honest, and um, I think they probably had a little bit more power than the, uh, the uh, Healy car. But and you did then race, did you not, a Fraser Nash at the Dundrod race? Yes, which I did. must have been yes. the first. Absolutely, the yes, but that was a private car. That was uh, oh. uh, uh, Stoop, I think it belonged to... Um, Dickie Stoop's car. Dickie Stoop, I think. Mm. Um, or, no, it was another gentleman, but the they were two friends together. And um, I think it was entered in the name of the works, but it's actually a, a private car. 
But Dundrod must have been quite a step up for you because that was a narrow, fast Irish road circuit, yes. just Irish lanes, really. Yes. Nothing like racing round uh, developed aerodrome circuits like Silverstone no, and Goodwood. No, it's absolutely true. Uh, but I found it much more um, interesting, more fascinating. I mean, it was real road, road, road racing. Uh, but the thing is, um, is, I never drove the car, drove the car with the idea of, um, of finishing off the circuit. So whether, in fact, it was um, uh, a, a grass and uh, a white line or whether it was a, a brick wall, it never made any difference to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, uh, you know, it didn't have any impact on me. I just enjoyed it that much more because uh, it, was, um, it was a greater challenge. Well, now, your performance in that Fraser Nash uh, attracted the attention of John Wire and you found yourself with a works drive for Aston Martin. But what I want to move on to now is this story which, if you read it in a bad motor racing novel, you wouldn't really believe it. Here is this dental surgeon who is rung up at the hospital where he's working by the head of the Connaught Formula One team and asked if you could get the next weekend off from your medical work to go to southern Italy yeah. and drive in your first yeah. Yeah. Formula One race. Actually, yes. I think your first single-seater race. Well, it's the first time I ever sat in a Formula One car was at Syracuse, in fact, uh, in 55. And I think when you got there... October 22nd, you, you, I think. You had to take various aeroplanes yes. to get there. Yes. You, you were on the planes for eight hours. Yes. And is it right that you were sitting on these rather noisy, slow aeroplanes with your dental studies on your lap, studying yes. for your next dental exam? Yeah, well, certainly, yes, I, was, I didn't want to waste any time because uh, um, I, I, the um, principal at the dental college took a, a very good view, uh, or a very encouraging view, I should say, of my involvement. But um, I didn't want to prejudice um, his goodwill by in any way falling behind in my dental studies, so maybe you know, maybe I studied a lot harder and did a lot better than I would have done it, but I wasn't motor racing, if you understand. Um, so, um, uh, yes, I did. I didn't like to waste any, any time because I suppose there's a, a slight guilt uh, complex there that I should really be at uh, home at the dental hospital. Uh, but um, so I did manage to work them in between, um, work my motor racing commitments in between my um, dental uh, commitments. But I was fortunate in that... Um, as you progress, it was a five and a half year course. You know, we did um, uh, we did quite a few a few, a few years of the um, the, the medical course, uh, plus our own subjects, and so it was five and a half years. But I was fortunate in that um, as my motor racing proceeded, um, so I moved further on in my in my studies, and the more mature you were regard, uh, um, regarded to be, and therefore the more you trusted or trusted. You know, if you missed a lecture it wasn't going to be the end of the world and you were going to catch up with your friends' notes and so on and so forth. And uh, when I got to the stage, you see, when I was uh, racing at Goodwood, it was, um, uh, it was just um, a Saturday and uh, we would drive down on a Friday night and stay at a bed and breakfast at uh, Bognor Reedus, my father and I, occasionally my, my brother, Paul. And um, so it was... Um, I was only lo losing, um, uh, well, probably less than half a day, the Friday. Uh, we would drive down on the Friday, Friday night, Friday evening, Friday night, and race on the Saturday. 
and um, uh, drive back on uh, on the Saturday after mm. the race. Mm. So uh, we just had the one bed and breakfast in in Bognorius and uh, be back. So. Um, but then, when I started to um, get more involved and needed more more time off, you know, um, I was at the stage where the clinical stage, where I could organise my appointments and so on and so forth to uh, to fit in with the slightly extra time I needed. So in that sense, my progression in the motor racing world coincided quite nicely yeah. with my progression in the in the dental world. So I was well, fortunate in that respect. Let's let's talk about Syracuse. I think you got there after this slightly grueling uh, trip to find that this car that you'd never sat in, which you were expected to race against the works Maseratis and so on on the Sunday, hadn't arrived. Yeah, that's right. Um, So when it finally did arrive, I mean, you barely had time to find out where the pedals were before you were on the track for practice. Well, 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 that is true. But the uh, mechanics, the, um, the team was, was run by uh, Mike Oliver there. Uh, he, he was in charge of the team, and he, he was um, having kittens, you know, when they didn't uh, arrive, as you can imagine, because he was coming down in, uh, uh, in his own car, and, uh, of course, the mechanics were in their car, uh, their uh, truck, and, uh, of course, he was being put through it. And, um, but anyway, they eventually arrived at uh, Syracuse, and... Um, they did a fantastic job of preparing that car. It was absolutely immaculate. Although, they, you know, I forget how many, it's all in the, in the book, but um, I, uh, I don't know how many days they spent, but it was ages and ages and ages. And in fact, they had a problem with the customs where initially when they got into France or into Belgium, I think it was. So they lost days there arguing with the, with the, uh, with the customs there. Unfortunately, there was one mechanic who I think had a mother who was French, and he managed to sort of, I think, smooth them down and get them through. So anyway, they eventually arrived, and um, but they made up for the lost time. They prepared the car immaculately. Uh, it was uh, beautifully polished, and uh, there could be possibly, it couldn't possibly be any complaint about the condition of the car. But you had to learn the circuit. Yes. And learn the car. Yes. When you went out and practice. Yes. And you qualified, I think, on the front row. Yeah, yes, uh, yes, that's right, yes. Well, um, uh, yes, uh, you know, we, we, managed, we made the best of, uh, of the time, uh, the practice time we had. I think... Um, I, I, I told you he was a modest man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, I tell you, I, I think um, I, I um, had a, a, a very slow spin, actually, on one corner, one into the, into the, um, into the pit straight. And, um, but it was, um, uh, it was a very, very slow one. No, I tell, yes, there was some oil put down. And, um, but I, I, I didn't uh, spot it. So that was the only sort of slight blemish. But I didn't touch anything. It was very slow, very, one of these very slow, uh, uh, not even a spin. Well, and, um, mo- moving on then to the race. Yes. You won the race. Yes. <laughs> well, I think, well, the most surprised person was me, uh, <laughs> followed by the journalists and um, followed by a, a very... Uh, Sympathetic, well, sympathetic, very extraordinary um, uh, spectators because they'd come here there to expect the uh, the Maserati team to uh, run away with everything because uh, uh, after Mercedes, after Mercedes, um, Maserati was the team to beat at that time. Sure. And Mercedes had uh, had just retired, I think, a few weeks beforehand, and I think uh, the Sicilians and uh, 
the, uh, the people from mainland Italy had come to uh, to you know encourage and applaud uh, a Maserati um, walkover, and but amazingly enough, they um, they took uh, they took very well the situation and. Uh, they were very encouraging, very enthusiastic, and uh, uh, in actual um, uh, fact, I'd, I was moving around. I'd learnt the circuit. I should have mentioned this. Uh, I learnt the circuit on a Vespa. Uh, that's where I got. Uh, you know, you know, we didn't. Uh, we weren't able to afford hire cars in those days, so we hired a Vespa, and I learnt uh, the circuit. I learnt it in the sense of which way, uh, you know, what was coming up next. But uh, you couldn't relearn it in a in a racing sense, but at least if you knew which way the, the road was going was a start. And um, so I'd been moving around on this Vespa, and uh, when I won the race, I was a little bit overwhelmed, you know, because people, have people were, you know, sort of, um, you know, excited and uh, congratulating me and beating me on the back and that sort of thing. And I thought, well, oh my goodness, you know, this is completely new to me. And uh, my first thought was I wanted to get away and uh, into the hotel room and have a nice, uh, Nice shower. So uh, uh, the first thing was I dashed to um, the back of the uh, uh, where I'd left the scooter, and um, and it was still there. So that was a good start. <laughs> but um, before I came out to um, to Syracuse, I'd had a, a crown, the upper left crown, uh, replaced, and uh, I'd had a temporary one uh, put in, uh, which uh, was uh, you know only temporary. So um, I'd been uh, doing an awful lot of uh, kilometres on this scooter, as you can imagine, trying to learn this circuit. And um, to the point where I got a really red raw uh, in uh, inner uh, aspect of my first finger and my thumb. Now, it must have been this one. Uh, and um, it was red raw, and I'd had taken to um, having to bind it with, um, with handkerchief, you know, so that it didn't get even more raw. So I put my handkerchief around here by the, or by the scooter, ready to dive off, and I put it around here. I put it like this, and what you do, you put it in here, and you tighten it like that, don't you? <laughs> so my, my temporary crown finished on the floor. So there I was with all these uh, enthusiastic uh, Italians uh, around me, you know, sort of, uh, and I was desperately trying to find this, uh, this tooth on the floor. <laughs> I'm trying to tell them to step back because I didn't want to lose this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, uh, this crown. But anyway, it was too late and uh, I, I never found it. And um, uh, so... That, that was um, an extraordinary introduction to the world of international Grand Prix Well, that's racing. right, yes, a real, real star performance. <laughs> yeah. um, well, when you got back to England, and, and this was, as I said in the introduction, the first time that a British driver and a British car had won a race called a Grand Prix. Because remember, there wasn't just the World Championship Grand Prix in those days. There were also significant races elsewhere around Europe called Grand Prix. It was the first time that a British car and a British driver had won uh, a Grand Prix since 1924. So it was making the headlines. By the time you got home, you suddenly found to your surprise, and probably not to your pleasure, you were a famous man. And then the offers started to come in, and there's so much we can talk about. I mean, yeah. just briefly, um, you accepted a Formula One drive with BRM, and that was one of the, the, your uh, race at Silverstone for BRM was one of the two races, you say, in your 
uh, career when you didn't follow your own rule of always racing a car that you knew was mechanically mm. as it should be. Mm. Just tell us about the, the, the Silverstone accident with the BRM. Yes. Well, uh, before I come to that, um, as a result of my win at Syracuse, I was offered... Um, Connaught, of course, wanted me to drive for them, and it might, have, uh, might appear um, ungrateful of myself not to go for Connaught. But the trouble is, the car was very basically unreliable, and um, you know it hadn't been going very well. It had a wonderful chassis, wonderful brakes, but what it was short of was an engine. Uh, the engine it had was um, a two-litre... I'm sorry, perhaps if I'm leaning one way. Um, uh, it's a two and a half, it was a two-litre ultra engine from before the war, which was bought, bought out to two-and-a-half litre, and it didn't have enough power, and it was unreliable. And in fact, for most of the race, I was you know, using less than maximum revs. Um, and um, so a great chassis, great brakes, but the basic problem was the, was the engine. And um, so that's why I didn't feel that it would have been right to, to go to, uh, to Connaught. And unfortunately, subsequently, they didn't do very well because they didn't have the car. Oddly enough, Commodore Climax had an ideal two and a half litre engine, but for some reason, they never released it. Mm. And I, I think if, uh, if Connaught had been able to get that two and a half litre engine, you know, it could have been a very different story for them. Mm. But anyway, mm. that's by the by. Um, Rob Walker also offered me a drive because he had a, a Connaught. And the third offer was, uh, was BRM. Mm. And um, it's, uh, <coughs> it's, it, it, they, never, uh, they never got that car anywhere near right. Um, it would never drift. The engine was good, in a straight line, it had a good, good performance, good acceleration, uh, which is why Sir Mike and I led the, Mike Hawthorne and I led the Grand, British Grand Prix uh, for you know, the first four or five laps, I think it was, because we had a good uh, straight line performance um, off the line, and, uh, but it, it could never drift the car. So anyway, in the race, um, the, um, the accelerator linkage broke, and um, I stopped at Stowe Corner and uh, um, somebody helped me to, um, uh, to lash up a connection and I managed to get the car back to the pits. Is it right that you actually borrowed his fountain pen and um, used his pen or his pencil? I don't know. I, I, can't, I'm not, I, can't, I can't verify that, but I had, I had some help. This I is what some unreliable journalist wrote at the time. Well, exactly. I think perhaps, perhaps uh, 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 trying to, uh, yes... Uh, gloss it up a bit but uh, I don't remember that I have yeah. to say yeah. but um, anyway we got it back to the pits and uh, then they did what they thought was a, an adequate repair and I lost about uh, oh, I don't know nine lights I mean all I could do now bearing in mind that the only performance I'd given that indicated I might have something uh, uh, Grand Prix capability was at Syracuse which was a one-off and, and here was in, in July and Syracuse was October so I thought well I can't get anywhere in this race because, uh, as I say, nine laps or something, I was in the pits. But I thought what I can do is try and demonstrate that I can drive a car quickly. But anyway, when I got back in the race, this uh, job they'd done on the accelerator uh, was that it was beginning to... It was sticking on, um, uh, on some of the corners. It wasn't coming off straight away. Um, uh, uh, so corner I'd been taken flat, um, uh, flat out. Uh, but, of course, in the nine laps I'd been in the pits, some more rubber and oil had been uh, deposited. 
So, um, but anyway, I came to Stowe, bearing in mind I was trying to demonstrate that, you know, uh, Syracuse, Syracuse wasn't a, a fluky one-off. And um, I thought, oh, this is flat. So I went into it flat. So all I needed was just a quick, quick like that. Uh, it would have been sufficient, you see, which if the accelerator is waiting, working uh, properly, um, it wouldn't have been a problem. So, um, uh, but it didn't come off. With any decent handling car, all I'd have had to have done would have been to gone along the, the grass verge, you know, for 50 yards or so, and, and edged back onto the road. But immediately anything untoward happened with that car, you know, completely out of control. So it span around and uh, uh, finished up on the uh, outside of the circuit and uh, turned over and threw me out. Uh, and um, the only decent thing it did was it at least deposited me on the grass rather than on the, uh, on the Tom Macadam. And also, it recognised the error of its ways and set itself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I haven't been doing my job very well because I forgot that we've got some more lovely pictures over here. So let's go quickly through... Um, there is Tony winning the Syracuse Grand Prix in the Connaught. And just to bring it up to date, I think we've also got a picture of Tony driving the same car um, in a demonstration at the Goodwood Revival. And a very pretty car, I always thought, the Connaught. It, it, yes. And beautifully turned out, of course. Yes. But now we're going to move on from BRM because you moved on in 1957 to Van War. Uh, but you were also, in those days, Formula One drivers liked to work every weekend. And so not only were you a, a works driver for, for Van Wall in Formula One, you were also a works driver for Aston Martin yes. in sports car racing, yes. in which you were very successful. Mm. But the British Grand Prix in 1957, it was at Aintree, and it came what, three weeks, four weeks after the Le Mans 24 yes, hours? Yes, that's right, yes. When you'd been driving for Aston Martin. Yes. And that was the other of the two occasions yes. when you broke your own rule Absolutely. about not driving a car that wasn't properly Absolutely. set up. So tell us yeah. about Le Mans first. Well, you mentioned the rule. I didn't mention the rule because uh, I thought it would come up about, um, about, uh, about um, Le Mans. But BRM was the first regulation, the first rule. Indeed. The first we thing I said, look, you were a lunatic... You know, that car wasn't fit to drive and uh, uh, it was only a question of really cruising down, round and finishing. But, you see, I was so intent on trying to show that Syracuse wasn't just a one-off and that, that, you know, that was absolute lunacy. So I said, look, don't do this, uh, this again, uh, driving a car which is not fit to be driven at the limits of its normal capability. Uh, so at uh, 57 uh, at uh, Le Mans, um, I was driving with Noel Cunningham-Reed, and he was a very, very good driver. We won the Nürburgring 1,000 kilometres together. Um, and um, he brought it in about 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, we were in second place. And he said that, um, you know, it was st stuck in fourth gear. And I thought, well, OK, that's exactly what I had at, uh, at Spa um, a few weeks before, and um, I managed to... Uh, get it out of gear and, and won the race. So I thought, uh, clever clogs, I can do this again. So I got the car out of the uh, out of the pits, you know, having to slip the clutch because obviously stuck in the, stuck in the top top gear, 
Anyway, got it out and, uh, of the pits. And um, the first straight I came to, after the pits, there's a sort of a right and then a left and then a right, and then there's a short straight to Tetruz into the straight. Sure. Uh, there's a very short straight there. <laughs> sure. And um, so, well, this is, you know, this is three o'clock in the morning, lying in second place. I don't want to start, you know, been dropping around the field, you know, uh, uh, and I must get this out of gear, uh, out of fourth gear, as soon as I possibly can. First straight that comes along, I have to do it here, I have to do it here. So what I was doing was um, accelerating hard um, and, um, and then um, pressing the clutch and then trying to, uh, when I lift, I lift it hard and then off, then as I pull the, my foot off the accelerator, I would simultaneously uh, try to pull the gear lever out, or it would be the other way, I think, no, I, know, I can't remember, to pull it out of fourth gear into fifth gear. I was synchronizing hard acceleration, hard pull on the gear lever to try and pull it out. And of course, and then I was doing the first thing that you are told, or one of the first things you're told when you start to drive, is don't ever look down on the gear lever. So what was I doing? <laughs> I was looking down on the gear lever and, you know, accelerating, boom, accelerating, boom. And uh, then I looked up and I passed my braking point. Uh, mistake number one. Mistake number two was that um, I tried to get round the corner, and in fact, I put it on a perfectly good line, although I was going too quickly, on the perfectly good line, in a drift, in a drift, and, you know, on the, clipped the acres quite correctly, and on the exit, unfortunately, on the exit, the sand, which they use outside of Tet Rouge, came literally down to the edge of the road. There was no grass verge, nothing, just sand right to the edge of the road, so I finished the fear, went uh, drift wide, and then uh, start running up the bank like that. And of course, um, it was uh, uh, never designed to do um, rallies, so uh, the Aston Martin uh, flipped over like that and tracked me in underneath. And um, uh, so there I was lying underneath this car three o'clock in the morning, darkness, but nobody could see me because I was round the corner past the apex in any case. So um, I was wondering, well, the, was it going to be a straight uh, run-over job or was I going to be um, um, uh, cremated, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, one or the other it could have been. Anyway, um, fortunately, um, uh, an Italian driver came around whose name escapes me just at the moment, a lovely nice guy. Um, and um, he got, came round and he... By, and his Aston Martin was was that was the um, uh, uh, that was the sandbank, and the Aston Martin was like this. So my tail, tail was sticking out into the road, and he came round the bend and just kept it uh, far enough out to just clip the back of my car, clip the back of my Aston Martin, which tipped it off me, <laughs> and it allowed me to get up and um, uh, from underneath the car and run up the uh, the sandbank. I don't know about run. Uh, scramble up the, uh, the, the sandbank and uh, uh, collapse into the hands of an astonished um, uh, flag marshal. <laughs> so I was extremely lucky there, and um, I wish I could remember the name, that wonderful chap who, uh, unfortunately, he had to retire, and I apologised profusely to him, the, uh, a Porsche driver. Uh, but he was very well known. Anyway, mm. 
Um, so I, you know, I was very thankful to him to say the very least, and I sort of thanked him afterwards and apologised for the causing him to retire. Well, and that's going to bring us to this picture here because you you did hurt yourself at at, uh, at Le Mans. Well, yes. May I come before we come to that? May mm. I just explain that this was following up from I said this is my second mm. my second decision, my second experience which said, you don't ever, ever, ever try and race a car at its maximum performance if it's not fit to race. Mm. So this was, you know, this was a convincing number two. But <clears throat> you see, funnily enough, neither were a driving accidents. They were stupidities. I should not have, I should have recognised the BRM was, you know, not fit to drive uh, mm. fast. And I should have recognised that, you, you know, you don't mess about with a gear mm. lever and uh, miss the braking point. Mm. So they weren't driving errors as such. Mm. They weren't, you know, uh, mistake, uh, the driving mm. decision. It was a, a, th a thicko uh, mistake up here. Well, <coughs> we're going to, um, there's so much of your career we could talk about, and we're going to have to compress bits of it, but we are going to come uh, to uh, the race in America where mm. many of us believe you could well have been the 1959 world yeah. champion, yeah. except you decided to yeah. exercise your rule. Yes. But let's come back from Le Mans. Yeah. You did bash yourself around quite badly in that yes. accident. Yeah. We get to the British Grand Prix, yeah. which was held at Aintree that year. Yes. You see all the traditional grandstands right. yes. on the left of the picture for yes. the horse racing yes. track. Yeah. And Van Wall, it was really a kind of battle between the Van Wals and the Ferraris yes. that season. Yes. And you and Sterling Moss... And the Maserati. Maserati too. Yes. Yeah. You and Sterling Moss were in the works Van Wals. Yes. And you both practised, even though you weren't physically at your yes. best. I think you um, almost equaled Sterling's pole position time. I think you were a fifth of a second slower or something. Yes, I right, equaled the, the lap record and um, Sterling was, yes... Uh, it was two fifths, two, two tenths of a second in, uh, in his car. Yeah. So obviously, <coughs> despite um, the fact that you were still really not recovered from that accident, mm. you, you were absolutely as quick. The race started, Sterling was leading. I think you were running in second or third place. Mm. And then Sterling's car hit trouble. Yes. And so he had to come in and stop at the pits. Yes. Now... How did it work that you, did you take the decision to stop? Were you feeling that your injuries were hurting you too much? No. Why did you then stop? No, it was prearranged, you see. that um, mm. The reason, I mean, I, I, you know, I shouldn't really have been allowed to start the race. I wasn't fit to start the race. I, I was in bed until um, uh, the Tuesday before the, the, the practicing started on the Thursday. And the first time I drove a car after the Lamar accident was uh, my father's car. To go to um, to go to Aintree, um, and um, I lost oh, I don't know an awful lot of weight as a result of this uh, this accident, um, and um, uh, obviously, as I say, I, I managed to bundle um, uh, bluff my way through the so-called medical. I mean, mm. uh, as as they were in those days, and um, but I shouldn't really have been allowed to race. Uh, obviously. If we're going to start three cars, there's a better chance of, uh, of, of uh, being successful than if you start two. Mm. So it was deciding, although I'd say uh, I managed to get uh, permission to start 
Um, I, um, uh, I decided that um, although I, you know, was as fast as ever, I couldn't do uh, I couldn't do 90 laps at a competitive race mm -hmm. because I just wasn't fit. I I had rubber all over me uh, to protect me in the in the cockpit. Um, so it was clear I couldn't do a competitive 90 laps, which is what the race was. Um, so I agreed beforehand that if Sterling or Stewart had a problem with their cars, I would bring my car in and they would take over. So uh, that's so it wasn't decided in the race; it was decided beforehand. So they hired a pit signal to yes. tell you that Sterling right. had stopped. Yeah. But what has always fascinated me is that you handed your car, your car which was healthy, over to Sterling, mm. uh, and Sterling. And so between you, you won the race mm. um, in the same car. You'd started it, he'd yes. finished it. But is it right that you then, despite the fact that you were in a lot of pain, you then got into Sterling's car, which hadn't been going particularly well, yeah. and you rejoined the race? Yes, that's correct, because, um, yeah, as I say, we were trying to, you know, if you have three cars running, you've got a better chance of, uh, of, of, of doing well. But because... Um, his, his was a misfiring problem. And, uh, you know, I'm sure, as, as many people here have had the experience that sometimes misfires can cure themselves, not very often. So I thought, look, you know, I should give it a try in case it, uh, it does clear itself. And I, I, I did exactly that. And, um, but unfortunately, it didn't uh, clear itself. And the problem, uh, the likelihood was I was just going to bust an engine, which uh, the manual could, uh, could do without... Um, Yes, Sterling in the car that you'd started. There, there is yeah. the start, incidentally. Yes. With, um, I think it's Sterling with the white ring round his air intake, and the, yes. you, you in the van wall with the yellow. Um, yes. Um, yeah. You're on, and, and who's in that Maserati? Who would that be? Yes, my, my, I'm on the left there because I'm on the uh, and, and Sterling front the right. row. Yeah. Um, and um, it is Bearer, is it? Thank you very yes, much. It yes, it is Bearer. It's Bearer. Yeah, right, Bearer, well, Bearer and I did uh, equal the fastest lap, equal the lap record. So we did Sterling exactly the same time. He was in the centre because he did it before me. I see. But Sterling and I, Sterling was actually a second slower when he tried my car, mm. but he had a new car and he finished that with two tenths of a second faster in his car. But that was, you know, that was just practice. And I say 90 laps, I could not... Well, there, done, there you are. Could in not have done it at a competitive car, speed. Uh, that, that's in the car that you started. So that was the car that went on to win. Yes. Um, wonderful shot at entry. Yeah. And if I can conjure up, there is the aftermath. Yes. With you and Sterling and the Winners' Cup. And of course, both of you showing, and this ha used to happen particularly in the Van Wall, as it did in the Mercedes. You always saw Sterling coming what he said were his owl eyes. Yes. But both of you have yes. had so much oil and rubber coming out yes, of the that's right. front. Yes. Well, so it's also brake lining, which is more worrying, because, of course, it's got, um, uh, um, it's got that uh, yeah. cancer, cancer subject in it, should I? Well, of course, yeah. yes. Absolutely. Yes, the, uh, yeah. the brake linings. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes. Well, that was, as I said earlier, that was the first time that the British Grand Prix had been won by a British driver. And uh, it, that was a great day, really. For We're all so used to Britain as they became 
when we went to Cooper and to Lotus, Britain became the dominant force mm. yeah. in uh, Grand Prix racing. Yes. But Van Wall, with Tony Vandevel's persistence and expenditure yes. of huge sums of money, yes. he was really um, in the vanguard yes. of oh, the British motor racing industry. Yes. Indeed, indeed. Yes, it's, um, oh, it's a tremendous uh, credit to uh, Tony Vanderbilt what he, uh, what he achieved. Of course, it was that, that was the first time that British car and drivers had won a World Championship Grand Prix. Indeed. The yeah. first time that a British car and driver had won a Grand Prix was yeah. Syracuse. Yeah. Um, so so uh, you were responsible for both. Uh, well, yes, but uh, <laughs> interesting. I wrote I wrote an article for um, I think it was Motorsport, um, um, uh, and I headed it uh, jumping the second fence at Aintree, and they didn't use it, which rather niggled me. <laughs> but however, uh, the second fence being, you know, absolutely. going from yeah. a non-world championship event to a world championship win. Yeah. Well, let's stay with Van Wall for a little while because we now move on to the next season, 1958. And um, that's a wonderful shot of Spa, the Belgian yes. Grand Prix in 1958. Yes. With Moss and Brooks at the front. <clears throat> you actually, in 1958, won three Grand Prix. You won that Belgian yes. Grand Prix. <coughs> you won the German Grand Prix at the Nürburgring, which we're particularly yes. going to talk about in a minute. And you won the Italian Grand Prix yes. at Monza. Um, and I'm sure you all remember that 1958 was the year when uh, all the Formula One circus arrived for the final race of the year at Casablanca. They used to have a Grand Prix there on the northern African coast. And the situation was that if Sterling Moss in the Van Wall could win and set fastest lap, and Mike Hawthorne finished no higher than third, Correct. Yes. then Sterling would have been champion. Yes. Well, Sterling did what he had to do, and he won and set fastest lap. Tony was in second place, mm. and sadly, and I think Hawthorne was in fourth, with yep. Phil Hill and the other Ferrari in third place. Yes. Sadly, your van wall failed. Yes. Hawthorne, of course, was then able, under team orders, don't know what Vettel would think about this, but uh, Hawthorne was able to be waved past by Phil Hill. He finished yes. second. He won yes. the World Championship by one point. Correct. Yeah. But let's stick with that 1958 season because mm. you really, I think that was your greatest year, wasn't it? And your, the German Grand Prix surely was your greatest race. Um, yes, I think that's correct. Yes. Um, obviously... I only finished third in the World Championship in 58, whereas I was second in 59. So uh, in, well, terms of right. in terms of Grand Prix, yes, yeah, uh, it was yeah. the best. Yeah. And of course, uh, I think that they were the two uh, greatest races, really. Mm. Spa, um, Nürburgring, yeah. and uh, Monza. So I won the three, yeah. I think, uh, the, the triple crown, I think. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, this shot... Um, with you, with a thermos flask of, I don't know what might be in there, Nothing but this strong. is when you have just won the German Grand Prix. Yes. And Sterling, who had retired, yes. is wearing a rather dinky cardigan, um, <laughs> complete with BRDC badge. Uh, but that race, uh, an extraordinary drive from you, 
because you came from behind. The two mm. Ferraris of Peter Collins and Mike Hawthorne were leading. We're talking about the Nürburgring, 14 yes. and a half miles round, yeah. surely the most demanding yes. Grand Prix circuit of all. Yes. And I think you had to make, what, 20 seconds up on the Ferraris, something like that. Oh, I think it's more than that. I can't, without, um, without checking it up, it's more than that. But um, I caught them up at a, a better pace than Fangio had the, the year before, which really made the race for me, um, because um, it was, you know, the 50, 58 and 57, uh, they were a very similar situation at, um, and that uh, it was Hawthorne and Collins mm. fighting against Fangio the previous year and uh, Hawthorne and Collins fighting against Brooks in, in 58 and um, so I got Ferrari's times and uh, um, it was, um, sorry, I got Maserati's times and uh, um, uh, compared them with um, uh, with, with my own, and uh, it was very, very, very encouraging. And um, so that's why, on such a great circuit, you know, to uh, um, to um, you know to be able to catch uh, and overtake Mike and Peter, who were obviously two two great drivers, was uh, very, would, very pleasing. And um, would you say that um, the Ferraris had more power than the Van Wall? They were quicker in a straight line. You had to do all the work on the corners. Um, uh, uh, yes, that's right. Um, we had the advantages of, of disc brakes, but um, although you've got to stop quite a, a lot on the Nürburgring, it's not continuous, you know. There wasn't a lot of... Uh, you weren't getting up at a lot of uh, speed between the corners. So we had advantages on the, uh, on the disc brakes, but the, the Van Wall, uh, and, um, you know, I wouldn't... Uh, the Van Wall won the World Manufacturers Championship in 58, so it's... Um, uh, I, I'm not, uh, it, what works, you know, if it works, don't fix it. But in actual fact, as Sterling will tell you, it was not an easy car to drive. Mm. It didn't really like to drift, you know, one managed to drift with some sort of, uh, it very, had a very long and ponderous gear change. Uh, but um, we managed to make it work and it was, mm. uh, you know, it won the world management chance. So that is what really matters, but it wasn't an easy car to drive. Mm. You know? mm. And um, so, uh, uh, the, Mazar the, Mazar the Ferrari had the advantage on the straight because I, yeah. I overtook them uh, more than once, uh, you know, on the back sections, and then they just sailed by me on the, uh, on the straight. And uh, my difficulty was trying to build up uh, uh, a big enough lead on the on the back section uh, to, um, uh, to give them too much distance to overtake me on the straight. Mm. So uh, this is what we were trying to do, and. Uh, poor old Peter was trying, he'd seen how much I'd got pulled out, and Peter was trying to sort of close the gap on me, um, you know, because he knew what was going to happen if he didn't close the gap. And Were you that able was, to... That was when he was just, you know... Did, did you see his accident in, in no, your no, mirrors? No, no. You'd, you'd moved no. too far. No, yeah. no, in, in, the, in the book, uh, it does... Uh, he, was, um, he was about, uh, you know, 20, 30 yards behind me, but I couldn't see it. I only knew something must have happened when I got into the straight, because that's... On the Nürburgring, there's not much time for looking in the mirror. Sure. But on the straight, obviously, you've got some time. Yeah. And when he didn't appear in my mirror, I was expecting to be yeah. in the mirrors on my tail, you know, and about to try and shoot past. But there's no sign of him, and um, mm. I thought the worst. But, I mean, well, I didn't thought the worst. I thought, you know, he must have had a mechanical failure or an mm. uh, accident of some time. But, of course, I had no idea that it was as serious as it turned well, out I to mean, be. 
there, there you are looking happy after the race. Because yes, but nobody I didn't know knew. at that time. Um, in know. fact, Mike Hawthorne, who obviously was Peter's great friend, yes. um, his Ferrari failed, I think, on the same lap. Yes. And he got a marshal to get on a field yeah. telephone. I mean, yeah. incredible to think. There weren't even proper uh, communications back to the pits in those days. But he persuaded a marshal to... Uh, make some sort of contact with race control on the field yeah. telephone and was told that Peter Collins was yes. bruised but okay. Yes. And I think that was why you were yes. able to look pretty happy. Oh, I never... Because you I, had no idea no, until much no, later that ever, Collins no. had been killed. And there's also one on me um, with a, a wreath around my neck. I still didn't know. So at least I was able to enjoy the, the success of the race, you know, mm. before... Uh, the truth came through, which was some time after mm. uh, the race, and obviously, uh, I don't think anybody was in a big hurry to um, mm. tell me about it. Uh, thank we, goodness. We, we ought to just mention this because it is always a source of astonishment to younger motor racing enthusiasts to comprehend that so many people got killed. I mean, mm. that year, yes, three Formula One drivers died, yes. including your own teammate, Stuart Lewis yes. Evans, at, at Casablanca. Yes. Yeah. Um, motor racing was enormously dangerous then. The That's tracks right. would have, yeah. sometimes like at uh, the Nürburgring, barbed wire beside the track. And there were all sorts of trees yes. and buildings and all That's sorts right. of things to yes. hit. No seat belts in the cars. The cars were much more fragile in yes. their construction. Absolutely. So you, who always wanted to make a rule not to drive a car that wasn't um, At its mechanically right. Yeah. You were obviously aware of the danger. You were mm. obviously aware that your friends, whom you might meet at breakfast, yes. wouldn't be around at dinner. Correct. How did that strike you? How did you deal with that? Well, the thing is that <clears throat> I drove up to the maximum of my ability. I never, ever forced myself I say my two accidents were stupidity, as I've already said, not driving errors. So I was confident that I was driving up to the limit of my ability and, and not beyond. And um, I never, like a certain person, admitted to having to sort of close his eyes, you know, in order to take a, a corner flat uh, at Syracuse. Um, uh, you know, in order, I would never, ever, ever do anything like that. I would drive it up to the limit of my capabilities, and that was it. And uh, hopefully, it was fast enough in order to uh, win the race. So, I was never contemplating that I would be overstepping the limit. But nevertheless, I accepted that circumstances could arise beyond my KMI uh, control. I mean, oil on the circuit was a very common problem in those days. Um, you go around a corner and somebody's, uh, you know, spun round and in the middle of the road. Um, and um, so there were circumstances like that beyond their control and you accepted that that was a possibility. But, you know, hopefully it was not a very high uh, probability that you could be caught up in that uh, situation. The main thing was your own driving ability. If you drove up to the limits of your own capability, you know, uh, you minimise, minimise the chances of, uh, you know, uh, an accident. The biggest problem is, of course, that because of the type of roads we were racing on in those days, uh, roads, uh, ordinary roads or roads made um, uh, very similar to them, um, you could come across anything, as you actually touched on earlier. You know, if you lose, you were entirely 
any one mistake could be your last in those days because of the type of roads we were racing on. You lose control, whether you hit a, 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 a pole or a, a rolled over in a ditch or a, even a telephone booth, um, that was entirely beyond your control once you've lost it. So any one mistake could be for fatal in those days because of the type of roads you were racing on. Well, that was 1958. <coughs> and there's Italy, excuse me, <coughs> with Mike Hawthorne congratulating yeah. you. Um, Mike Hawthorne, as we've said earlier, did win the World Championship that year by one point. But that was a great victory, one of those three, as Tony says, the triple crown of Spa, Bonobo, Green and Monza for him all in one year. Um, Mike Hawthorne retired after winning the World Championship that year and, as we all know, tragically died in January in a road accident. But is it true that when he decided to retire, he said to you, Tony, you ought to retire too. You're married to Pina now. Why don't you stop? Well, in fact, he said this to uh, Pina. Where is Pina? She's right there. Oh, she's there, yes. Um, because, um, she, yes, we were at, um, I think it was a BLDC dinner in London, wasn't it? And um, um, Mike, you, were, you, you came across him in the corridor, I think, um, and um, uh, that was when, when uh, Mike uh, said to you, he never actually said it to me, he said it to, to, to Pina. He said, you know, really, uh, this is, of course, after Peter's death, um, you know, really, you know, Tony ought to give up uh, motor racing, you know, it's much too dangerous uh, these days. But I don't, I don't recall him ever actually saying to me, but it was a, 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 his definite view, yes. Yes. Well, let's now, that, that moves us neatly into the 1959 season because you always loved, I think, racing yes. a British car. You were patriotic as mm. racing drivers were in those days. Yes. But Van Wall withdrew. Yes. And instantly Ferrari wanted you to become their number one driver. Yes. And there you are in Portugal. Yes. In the Ferrari. Yes. Uh, you actually won uh, the French Grand Prix at yeah. Reims, and we saw a little clip yes. of that earlier on. Yes. Um, but you also run, won the German Grand Prix the year it was at Arvus. We have yes. a picture of it, unfortunately. That's right. But that was on that ferocious banking. Yes, that's right. Banking. Yes. I mean, we can talk about banking here because, of course, we're at Brooklands, but the Arvus race was pretty terrifying. Two yes. lengths of yes. autobahn yes. with an enormous banking yes. uh, at the end. Yes. Was that a completely different race to what you were used to? Did it require a different technique? Well, yes. It, it, well, I don't know about a different technique, but it was um, you know, a very different race. And uh, the, um, the geometry of the, of the bank corner was, um, was not right. In other words, um, uh, you know, the angle the curvature and the angle were not related, you see. If they were related correctly, you should be able to go around beautifully at a, you know, a constant speed, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, you'd be feeling pretty good about it. But um, uh, somebody did some work on it, and, uh, uh, and, um, because the, see, the angle of the, of the banking, or the sharpness of the, of the corner in relation to the angle of the banking, 
there is a relationship that you get a balance whereby it can be much easier to drive that corner if you get those two related correctly. Somebody did that, I don't know, uh, mm. some uh, geometrician, I suppose. Um, and, um, and that hadn't been done properly, so um, uh, you really had to um, uh, watch it. You were drifting round there, much, much of that uh, corner. Mm. And um, it's, uh, of course, uh, Paul Bearer uh, lost his life, John Bearer, lost his life in the sports car race yes, the day before indeed. when uh, it was wet and it was wet the circuit was wet uh, just before the grand prix so um, uh, we were you know not exactly looking forward to the situation but uh, yeah. it mostly dried out before they actually uh, uh, dropped the starters flag and um, but um, i don't think a particularly different technique um, other than trying to i suppose uh, trying yeah. to cope with the fact that this was a, p a peculiar corner and doesn't uh, didn't quite uh, respond uh, as you uh, would normally expect a corner to respond. Mm -hmm. What about the differences between Van Wall, which was very British, I mean you had three yes. British drivers, yes. um, totally a British team, you then went to Scuderia Ferrari, mm. um, I think you said once you'd had uh, Mr. Vandervel coming to every race with his yes, white straw yes, hat. That's right. Always there. Yes. Enzo Ferrari never turned up. Never. Just came sometimes to practice at Monza. Well, once at Monza, yeah. to my knowledge, yes. Yeah. What about the atmosphere within the team? Uh, how, how did it differ between Van Wall and Ferrari? Well, uh, Van Wall were, were very professional, but very British. Uh, but, uh, uh, Ferrari were, um, yeah, they were professional, but not not quite as uh, tight, tightly run as the the Van Wall team. But um, uh, but they uh, they raced with their hearts, and um, their reaction was was noticeably more uh, uh, warm, enthusiastic, and dare one say Italian. Uh, than um, you know than most people, um, so they were both two very very professional teams, uh, but um, Van Wall was a slightly tighter ship, uh, rather tighter ship, and uh, you oh, you you know they were very enthusiastic when you won, you know, but uh, the Italians would be that much uh, sure. That's sure. more, uh, uh, over, uh, you might say, over the top. But, uh, and, and driving a Ferrari at Monza yes. in front of that crowd must have been yes. quite something. Well, yes, but uh, yeah, but I only drove it in, the, in practice, you see. I mean, that uh, was where I lost uh, one of the play three places. I lost the, uh, the World Championship in 59. Um, I only drove Ferrari in practice there, and uh, I think I was... Um, uh, a pole next to Sterling on the, on the starting line. I think two tenths of a second. I think it was maybe one tenth of a second slower than Sterling. And um, you know, great looking forward to the race. But um, I don't know whether they want to get into this. But uh, they um, at the end of practice, which as I say the only time I drove a Ferrari around Monza in front of uh, the adoring crowd, was um, uh, it was uh, the well, at the end of that practice. I um, commented, and it's a mis uh, comment I wish I'd never ever made more than any other comment I think I resent, uh, regret making. As I said, I think I smelt a little bit of Frodo uh, when, um, you know, at the end of my last lap when I was trying to uh, um, better Sterling's time. 
And um, of course, uh, Ferodo means, you know, some smell of burning. And um, of course, I said, I think it's the brakes, because, you know, I was really trying maximum to, um, to get the, the fastest lap. And uh, of course, what did they do? They interpreted that it was a clutch. It never was the clutch. I know whether it's a clutch or not, you know, because, uh, um, you know, you have clutch slip. You know. um, so what they did, they changed the clutch overnight and uh, on the Ferrari without any reference to me, which I suppose there, there's no obligation to that, but when I only expressed some uh, concern about this smell of Frodo, um, they didn't discuss it with me and they're perfectly within rights not to. And, um, of course, what happened is uh, I start the race and um, within 100 metres, the clutch had burnt out. Mm. So either it was faulty, a faulty mm. clutch, or they'd uh, fitted it uh, incorrectly. Mm. And um, I'd never, ever, ever burned out a clutch on a car in mm. the whole of my racing career. And uh, as Phil Hill finished second in that race, and I think I'd beaten every time we've, we've finished the race. Um. Yeah. Well, nevertheless, you arrived at the final round mm. of the World Championship that yes. year. Yes, yeah. In, at Watkins Glen? Yes. Uh, no, it, uh, at um, US Grand Prix, at the Sebring. Sebring, of yes. course, it was yes. at Sebring that yeah. year. And you were still in with the chance of yeah. winning the World Championship. And I don't know if we've got the next Well, picture. it was Sterling, Bravo and myself. Yeah, uh, that's right. And, uh, should and there, that, that is Sebring. Uh, now, yes, the, it is. Yes. The significant thing here is that Sterling retired, Bravo only finished fourth. Yeah. So if you'd been able to keep going, you would have been world champion, virtually without doubt. But in the early laps, you were hit from behind by your own teammate, Von Tripps. Mm. And you then had to make a decision, yes. not knowing if your car had been damaged. Yes. Should you keep going yeah. or should you make a pit stop? Yes. Well, I don't know whether you want to know the background to that before we come to that point, because uh, the thing is, Harry Shell was a, a bit of a joker. He was an um, Anglo-American, um, no, not Anglo-Franco-American. And um, he was you know, a bit of a joker. But the thing is, he did a lap, was credited with a lap for the... Uh, US Grand Prix 59 uh, that he never ever did because this was a terrible circuit I wish it had been um, uh, the uh, other circuit you mentioned for the Grand Prix uh, because this was a dreadful aerodrome circuit marked out with cones and Harry Shell had in fact cut off one of these corners you know just bypassed one of these cones and he was credited with uh, a lap that he never ever did um, you know several seconds out and uh, I was, in fact, third fastest uh, in practice, and uh, Sterling was first, I was second, and uh, I was third fastest uh, on a totally unsuitable circuit for the Ferrari, this aerodrome. And um, he was credited with this lap he never, ever did, and there was a big hoo-ha on the start line. And um, he, uh, uh, you know, he didn't sort of say, no, I, call, I cut the corner. And the officials let him get away with it. Uh, Romelu Tavoni, who was the team manager of Ferrari, did his best. I didn't interfere because I didn't think it was for the driver to, uh, and I could no more. Uh, I couldn't say any more than Tavoni could say anyway. And um, 
So they upheld his uh, claim that he did his fastest lap. The net result was, instead of me being on the front row next to Brabham, next to Sterling and Brabham, Sterling and Jack, um, I was moved to the second row, which may not seem to the end of the world, uh, and I was moved to the second row and on the other side of the grid, in fact, uh, beside, uh, behind Sterling. Uh, uh, but the trouble is it put me in front of uh, Von Tripps, um, who was known to, uh, uh, to, to have his uh, incidents, and um, he was most concerned in trying to get himself a permanent place in the Ferrari Formula One team. And uh, here he was right behind me as a result of uh, uh, Harishel insisting on this uh, lap time. He was immediately behind me and I think he made the simple uh, 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 conclusion that uh, the best way to try and get a team, uh, team place with Ferrari would be to follow the team leader, which as I was as, as number one. And um, so that's exactly what he did. He followed me so closely on the first lap that he, he uh, ran me up the backside. <laughs> and um, so I had to pull off and, um, and uh, try and um, decide what, was, uh, you know, what to do about the situation. So um, anyway, uh, it was not immobilized, the car. I managed to, um, uh, to um, I didn't lose the engine. And uh, I managed to start and I had half a lap to get back to the pits. And um, in that half lap, I, I, you know, I, might, I must have seemed like a year long because I had to decide whether I honored my, uh, my guarantee to myself, don't ever race a car that is, medically, medic that is mechanically below its ability to race at its maximum speed, should I, uh, do that or should I go in and check whether this car is fit to drive or not? Half a lap is not very long to sort of try and decide, but I'm very proud of myself to in fact decide and make myself, and that was it. I had to make myself go in the pits to have this car checked uh, to uh, satisfy myself that I wasn't going to make another, a third, and, and possibly fatal mistake, persevering with a car that wasn't fit to be a <coughs> race, race to the maximum. So um, I went in and um, in actual fact, you know, there was nothing major wrong. But you see, that leaves you with the thought, you know, afterwards, oh, if only had, if only I had done this. So it's no use reliving things. I would do the same thing again. And it was because of those two incidents we covered at some length earlier on that made me do that. And um, that cost me the championship because as you already mentioned, uh, Sterling retired and Jack uh, ran out of petrol, which is something he, he did, you know, I wouldn't say regularly, but he does, he did from time to time because he would always squeeze out an extra gallon of petrol, you know, take a gallon of petrol out of the car to get the, late, uh, the weight down. So he ran out of petrol. Sterling was out. so. Uh, if it were not for that, you know, I, I would have been world champion. But this is if only. But of course, there were other occasions in that uh, season which you may not wish to go into, where uh, the cat, I would have had enough points mm. anyway without that unfortunate uh, uh, contretemps, uh, which was indirectly the responsibility of Harry Shell. 
Tony, we could continue. We've got so much that we haven't even touched on. Our time is running out. Uh, we haven't talked about your sports car racing, uh, in particularly with, with Aston Martin. You also drove um, when you were with Ferrari um, in sports cars. Your Formula One career continued with BRM and Yeoman Credit. You'll have to come back and give us another um, hour or so of your time so that we can get on with that. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony Brooks. Fantastic. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure. I'm sure you're an educated audience. There'll be some questions. So usual rules of engagement. If you've got the microphone, <clears throat> you can ask a question. So hands up any volunteers. We always start slow. Okay, sir. I'll get to you. You may have to interpret <coughs> for me. You may have to Pass interpret that. for me. Thank Is that working? Yeah. Um, it's a question for both of you, actually, Tony, and for you, um, Simon. <clears throat> um, 32 years ago, I used to go to Vandervelde's, and I actually sat in Tony's car because they used to keep the Vanwells there. I've got lots of stories about Vandervelde's and going there, and I just wondered if I could have a moment of your time to, to go through them with you. Afterwards, you stories about Afterwards, okay. I'm sure Was there'll that the be question? time. I think it's um, a chat afterwards, Simon, is what uh, the gentleman's after. So. What do you want to chat afterwards about? Yeah. Oh, OK, uh, fine. Uh, another question, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, sir. If I pass that down, I'll come round. There you go. Thank you very much. Good evening, and thank you very much for coming and talking to us. I've just been reading a book uh, about Archie Scott Brown, and your name is mentioned in several occasions there when you competed against him. Um, do you have any recollections you might like to share? Any, any recollections of Archie Scott Brown? Yes. you did race against him. Yeah, indeed, yes. Well, he was a very, very good driver, and um, I don't know how he managed to do it, you know, because, of course, he had uh, uh, problems uh, with one arm. And um, it's, uh, he was very, very quick, and um, it was extremely sad that he uh, um, he's lost his life at Spa, I think, at uh, the fast left-hander. Um, just before the, um, the, the hairpin there. And um, yes, he drove a Connaught too very well. Uh, he drove it after me and uh, did it uh, uh, a lot of justice, but um, tended to be more in the shorter races in uh, Goodwood. Um, I think he may have done the odd uh, Grand Prix, yeah. but um, no, he, you know, he had a, uh, you know, a considerable d d uh, career ahead of him, had a, uh, not had that uh, sad um, accident at Spa. I don't know whether I can say too much more about him, but he was very, very good and uh, used to drive on the limit, you know. Um, uh, he was almost a, a drifting expert. And he was, um, I think it's generally agreed, isn't it, that there had been a race, um, Archie had dominated that particular class of short yes. distance uh, sports yeah, with car Lister, racing. He, was, he yeah. was beaten. Uh, a week before, a couple of weeks before, by Master and Gregory in a similar car. And I think at Spa, he was absolutely determined to stay ahead of Master and Gregory. Right. So maybe yes. he was driving on and over, over the yes, limit. Yes, over the limit, yes. Yeah. Okay, we've got another question here, gentlemen. Another question. Yeah, we're here. Thanks very much. Hello. Hello. 
Tony, you won on the Nordschleifer. Could you ever say that you had learnt it perfectly? It's surely impossible, isn't it? Sorry. You, 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 you won on the Nordschleifer of Nürburgring. I was one. You, you won yes. on, on the Nürburgring, yes. on the Nordschleifer. Yes, and in uh, you, the Van Wall. Indeed. Yes, I also won uh, at the uh, Aston in, Martin. In the sports car races, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you, you did an enormous number of miles yes. on the Nordschleifer. Could you yeah. say that you ever really were able to learn it, all those myriad corners? Yes. Well, you knew what was coming up, but, I mean, uh, there are said to be, I don't know who counted it, but I said to be 175 corners there. Mm. So there's no way that you'd ever go round and, uh, uh, and, and think that you'd... Uh, uh, taken every corner um, at the maximum limit of adhesion uh, at the fastest uh, pace, there's no way, but I mean no, I certainly knew uh, what was coming up and uh, uh, a principle that I had when I went to a new circuit, and of course absolutely essential Nürburgring, was that um, I would find corners that you couldn't mistake, identify definitely, and um, I would learn uh, sex I would um, as soon as I got to a corner I definitely knew, I would then learn that section until we got to another corner, which I definitely knew. Because otherwise, if you didn't uh, have uh, corners that you couldn't mistake, you would never get round to learning the whole circuit, if you follow me. Uh, so being, and of course, if you took the wrong corner, you thought this the corner was something else, you could have a very bad accident. So uh, learning the circuit by... Uh, in sections, not sections in that, you know, doing one at a time, they're doing sections by continuous uh, uh, circulating um, on the circuit, uh, but saying, oh yes, I know what this is, and now this, 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 oh, I know what this is. And then if you had made a mistake on that section between the two corners that you had identified for sure, you know, next time round, you would correct that. Okay, thank you. Yep, hold on, sir, just There's one moment. a question moment. right down here. Steve is bringing you the microphone. There we go. <coughs> How did you go on with Mike Hawthorne? How did you get on with Mike Hawthorne? Oh, well, fine. I mean, we drove, uh, we drove together in, um, in, in, in BRM in, uh, in, in 56. And uh, we, we never had an argument. Uh, and um, I didn't have any problem with him. But um, I have a principle of trying to get on with everybody, you know, and uh, <laughs> I was usually successful. And um, I didn't have any problem with him, but I mean, uh, you learn how to, how to deal with uh, people, I think, and you uh, learn what to do and what not to do. Um, so he was very cheerful and, uh, you know, very, uh, uh, you know, very quick driver. And, um, uh, but we had a lot of trouble with with BRM because the cars were really, uh, you know, just uh, not uh, not not up to what but they needed to be. But it's interesting. I mean, you, you you've just used a wonderful adjective, um, very polite adjective to describe Mike Hawthorne. You said he was cheerful. Yes. <laughs> I mean, here is a man who would think nothing of pouring a pint of beer over another driver's head after yes. a race as sort of part of his general. Cheerfulness. You are a very different I, character I never to went, Mike Hawthorne. I never went to a pub with Mike, so maybe that's the reason. <laughs> I 
And maybe you had to see him in a pub to see him where he really as he really was. But I'm I'm being truthful in saying that I I personally didn't have a problem. But you know I do pride myself on uh, you know trying to get on with people. And uh, no, we we never had a crossword. I think uh, we've we, got yeah. we've probably time got time for one, one last question, word, and that. then I'll be over to you, sir. Mm. Steve Cropley. Uh, th thanks for a great presentation, gentlemen. Uh, Tony, could you tell us who the greatest driver you consider you raced against was, and why? Who was the greatest driver that you raced against? The greatest driver? The greatest driver. Greatest driver. Oh, well, that's no problem, Fangio. Juan, Juan Manuel Fangio. What Juan was so Manuel great about Fangio. him? Pardon? What was so great about him? Um, well, what does he, I mean, he was physically fantastic, you know, great, fantastic anticipation, fantastic judgment, and so on. But he, he had a tremendous sense of balance uh, in, um, uh, you know, driving a car, certainly in those days, was very much about balance. You had to synchronise yourself with the car. And, um, you know, in drifting, uh, when you were drifting a car in the 50s, um, it was, uh, you know, Spa was the classic place for, uh, for, for uh, you've drifted all the circuits, but uh, Spa was the, the classic one. And, uh, you know, you'd, you'd go in wide uh, to a corner and um, you'd put the car into a drift. A drift means that all four tires are sliding relative to the road and you have the car uh, at an angle and you drift uh, on the line you have chosen so that you clip, not literally touch, clip the apex of that corner. And this drift, which could at Spa be 130, 140 miles an hour, this drift would just clip the apex of the corner and you would have to judge it with just delicate control of the steering and the accelerator so that the drift run out of, run out of movement to the left just before you reach the uh, outside of the circuit on the left-hand side of the corner. So you were driving um, uh, on, as if on a tightrope, almost by telepathy. You know, it's a, such a delicate thing. And I mean, it was so exciting uh, actually drifting. And this car, and you are just one with the car and driving and drifting on this, uh, on this, as, um, uh, this tightrope, as it were. And uh, as I say, you're not really having to do much with the steering wheel and the accelerator because you've set it up correctly for that particular corner. But, uh, and it's almost with, mental telepathy, you're getting the car to move in the fractions to ensure that you go through that corner on the best line at the best possible speed. And Fangio was particularly good at that? Uh, oh yes he was, he was, but um, uh, he, um, uh, yes, he, he, didn't, he didn't ever have to drive more than, deliberately more than 10 tenths. Whereas there's some drivers who did do that and they got away with it. Mm -hmm. But um, I think obviously Sterling was very, very, very close to him. Mm -hmm. But I think Sterling had to try just that little bit harder, make that extra effort beyond perhaps his natural limits, mm -hmm. whereas Fangio didn't. Sterling always regards Fangio as the greatest. Yes. Um, Perhaps a final note, because I know I'm, I'm getting signals from Steve and we are going to have to wrap up now, but a final note which um, 
Tony may or may not have heard, but somebody asked Sterling Moss um, if he were the team manager of the Aston Martin sports car team, where you needed a pair of drivers for each car, who would the, if he had the choice of any drivers, who would he have as his number one pairing? And he said, no question, I would have and Jim Clark. Now that would have been a hell of a good team. <laughs> and sadly, we are there going to have to stop. Can we have a big hand, please, ladies and gentlemen, for Tony Brooks? Ladies and gentlemen, I'd love this to go on all evening, but uh, we are where we are. Um, I'd like you to welcome the chairman of the Brooklyn Museum Trust, Sir Jerry Asher, to join me here to do some presentations. Jerry. We've got some very special presentations this time. Uh, they are absolutely priceless. It's part of the uh, banking, our famous banking. Um, it'll have more value than the Berlin Wall that was pulled down. <laughs> but actually, I ought to say that it's probably valueless, because otherwise you'll all be out there with your hammers. <laughs> and that will not give us much pleasure. Tony, you've given us such a fantastic evening, as you have as well, Simon. Um, it's those little vignettes that we will take back, those very special vignettes told with such calmness and modesty. Uh, just phenomenal. It's uh, an, an expression of modesty that one doesn't normally associate with motor racing. But uh, the extent that you've explained it and your raison d'etre and your rule, and we wouldn't be having this evening if you had not kept it to that rule. So I think we're all glad that you did. So thank you so much for all you've done, all the pleasure you've given to all of us tonight, and we look forward maybe to a, a repeat occasion. So thank you very much indeed, Tony. An equally special piece of, absolutely, yes indeed. <laughs> You know, I have a feeling that John Cobb, his tyre just jumped over there. We've you seen the picture over there. Yeah. He, he, his tyre didn't actually hit it. <laughs> I shall treasure that. John, thank you thank very, you much, very indeed. much indeed. And thank you for a wonderful evening. And, and one for Steve as well, for all you've done for us. Yours seems to be a bit rougher on the underside. I don't, I don't know why that is. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And, and lastly, for that very, very special person who has kept Tony on the, well, dare I say straight and narrow or drifting around the bends, at, uh, Tina. Thank you very much indeed. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I know we're very warm. A couple more things to do. We've got a very short auction to perform this evening. First item is a print 
by Michael Turner of Tony. Um, Michael is here this evening and he's willing to countersign it once again. So can I start the bidding at 25 pounds, please? Any offers 25? 